Chapter Thirteen of Two Years Before the Mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter Thirteen Trading at Monterey. The next day, the cargo having been entered in due form, we began trading. The trade room was fitted up in the steerage and furnished out with the lighter goods and with specimens of the rest of the cargo and Mellis, a young man who came out from Boston with us before the mast, was taken out of the forecastle and made supercargo's clerk. He was well qualified for this business, having been clerk in a counting-house in Boston. He had been troubled for some time with rheumatism, which unfitted him for the wet and exposed duty of a sailor on the coast. For a week or ten days all was life on board. The people came off to look and to buy, men, women, and children, we were continually going in the boats, carrying goods and passengers, for they have no boats of their own. Everything must dress itself and come aboard and see the new vessel, if it were only to buy a paper of pins. The agent and his clerk managed the sails, while we were busy in the hold or in the boats. Our cargo was an assorted one, that is, it consisted of everything under the sun. We had spirits of all kinds, sold by the cask. Teas, coffee, sugar, spices, raisins, molasses, hardware, crockeryware, tinware, cutlery, clothing of all kinds, boots and shoes from Lynn, calicoes and cottons from Lowell, crepes, silks, also shawls, scarfs, necklaces, jewelry, and combs for the women, furniture, and in fact everything that can be imagined, from Chinese fireworks to English cartwheels of which we had a dozen pairs with their iron tires on. The Californians are an idle, thriftless people, and can make nothing for themselves. The country abounds in grapes, yet they buy, at a great price, bad wine made in Boston and brought round by us, and retail it among themselves at a real, twelve and a half cents, by the small wine glass. Their hides, too, which they value at two dollars in money, they barter for something which costs seventy-five cents in Boston, and buy shoes, as like as not made of their own hides, which have been carried twice round Cape Horn, at three and four dollars, and chicken-skin boots at fifteen dollars a pair. Things sell, on an average, at an advance of nearly three hundred percent upon the Boston prices. This is partly owing to the heavy duties which the government, in their wisdom, with an idea, no doubt, of keeping the silver in the country, has laid upon imports. These duties and the enormous expenses of so long a voyage keep all merchants but those of heavy capital from engaging in the trade. Nearly two-thirds of all the articles imported into the country from round Cape Horn for the last six years have been by the single house of Bryant, Sturgis, and Co., to whom our vessel belonged. This kind of business was new to us, and we liked it very well for a few days, though we were hard at work every minute from daylight to dark, and sometimes even later. By being thus continually engaged in transporting passengers with their goods to and fro, we gained considerable knowledge of the character, dress, and language of the people. The dress of the men was as I have before described it. The women wore gowns of various textures, silks, crepe, calicoes, etc., made after the European style, 
except that the sleeves were short, leaving the arm bare, and that they were loose about the waist, corsets not being in use. They wore shoes of kid or satin, sashes or belts of bright colors, and almost always a necklace and earrings. Bonnets they had none. I only saw one on the coast, and that belonged to the wife of an American sea captain who had settled in San Diego, and had imported the chaotic mass of straw and ribbon as a choice present to his new wife. They wear their hair, which is almost invariably black or very dark brown, long in their necks, sometimes loose and sometimes in long braids, though the married women often do it up on a high comb. Their only protection against the sun and weather is a large mantle, which they put over their heads, drawing it close round their faces when they go out of doors, which is generally only in pleasant weather. When in the house or sitting out in front of it, which they often do in fine weather, they usually wear a small scarf or neckerchief of a rich pattern. A band, also about the top of the head, with a cross, star, or other ornament in front, is common. Their complexions are various, depending, as well as their dress and manner, upon the amount of Spanish blood they can lay claim to, which also settles their social rank. Those who are of pure Spanish blood, having never intermarried with the Aborigines, have clear brunette complexions, and sometimes even as fair as those of English women. There are but few of these families in California, being mostly those in official stations, or who, on the expiration of their terms of office, have settled here upon property they have acquired, and others who have been banished for state offenses. These form the upper class, intermarrying and keeping up an exclusive system in every respect. They can be distinguished not only by their complexion, dress, and manners, but also by their speech. For calling themselves Castilians, they are very ambitious of speaking pure Castilian while all Spanish is spoken in a somewhat corrupted dialect by the lower classes. From this upper class they go down by regular shades, growing more and more dark and muddy, until you come to the pure Indian, who runs about with nothing upon him but a small piece of cloth, kept up by a wide leather strap drawn round his waist. Generally speaking, each person's caste is decided by the quality of his blood, which shows itself too plainly to be concealed at first sight. Yet the least drop of Spanish blood, if it be only of quadroon or octoroon, is sufficient to raise one from the position of a serf, and entitle him to wear a suit of clothes, boots, hat, cloak, spurs, long knife, all complete, though coarse and dirty as may be, and to call himself Espanol, and to hold property if he can get any. The fondness for dress among the women is excessive, and is sometimes their ruin. A present of a fine mantle, or of a necklace or a pair of earrings, gains the favor of the greater part. Nothing is more common than to see a woman living in a house of only two rooms, with a ground for a floor, dressed in spangled satin shoes, silk gown, high comb, and gilt, if not gold, earrings and necklace. If their husbands do not dress them well enough, they will soon receive presents from others. They used to spend whole days on board our vessel, examining the fine clothes and ornaments, and frequently making purchases at a rate which would have made a seamstress or waiting-maid in Boston open her eyes.
Next to the love of dress, I was most struck with the fineness of the voices and beauty of the intonation of both sexes. Every common ruffian-looking fellow, with a slouched hat, blanket cloak, dirty underdress, and soiled leather leggings, appeared to me to be speaking elegant Spanish. It was a pleasure simply to listen to the sound of the language, before I could attach any meaning to it. They have a good deal of the Creole drawl, but it is varied by an occasional extreme rapidity of utterance in which they seem to skip from consonant to consonant, until lighting upon a broad, open vowel, they rest upon that to restore the balance of sound. The women carry this peculiarity of speaking to a much greater extreme than the men, who have more evenness and stateliness of utterance. A common bullock driver, on horseback, delivering a message, seemed to speak like an ambassador at a royal audience. In fact, they sometimes appeared to me to be a people on whom a curse had fallen, and stripped them of everything but their pride, their manners, and their voices. Another thing that surprised me was the quantity of silver in circulation. I never in all my life saw so much silver at one time as during the week that we were in Monterey. The truth is, they have no credit system, no banks, and no way of investing money but in cattle. Besides silver, they have no circulating medium but hides, which the sailors call California banknotes. Everything that they buy they must pay for in one or the other of these means. The hides they bring down dried and doubled in clumsy ox carts or upon mules' backs, and the money they carry tied up in a handkerchief, fifty or a hundred dollars and half dollars. I had not studied Spanish at college and could not speak a word when at Juan Fernandez, but during the latter part of the passage out, I borrowed a grammar and a dictionary from the cabin, and by a continual use of these and a careful attention to every word that I heard spoken, I soon got a vocabulary together and began talking for myself. As I soon knew more Spanish than any of the crew, who, indeed, knew none at all, and had studied Latin and French, I got the name of a great linguist, and was always sent by the captain and officers for provisions, or to take letters and messages to different parts of the town. I was often sent for something which I could not tell the name of to save my life, but I liked the business and accordingly never pleaded ignorance. Sometimes I managed to jump below and take a look at my dictionary before going ashore, or else I overhauled some English resident on my way, and learned the word from him and then, by signs and by giving a Latin or French word a twist at the end, contrived to get along. This was good exercise for me, and no doubt taught me more than I should have learned by months of study and reading. It also gave me opportunities of seeing the customs, characters, and domestic arrangements of the people, besides being a great relief from the monotony of a day spent on board ship. Monterey, as far as my observation goes, is decidedly the pleasantest and most civilized-looking place in California. In the center of it is an open square, surrounded by four lines of one-story buildings, with half a dozen cannons in the center, some mounted and others not. This is the Presidio, or Fort. Every town has a Presidio in its center, or rather, every town has a Presidio built around it. For the forts were first built by the Mexican government, and then the people built near them for protection. 
The presidio here was entirely open and unfortified. There were several officers with long titles, and about eighty soldiers, but they were poorly paid, fed, clothed, and disciplined. The governor-general, or as he is commonly called, the general, lives here, which makes it the seat of government. He is appointed by the central government in Mexico, and is the chief civil-military officer. In addition to him, each town has a commandant, who is its chief officer, and has charge of the fort and of all transactions with foreigners, while two or three alcaldes and corregidors, elected by the inhabitants, are the civil officers. Courts strictly of law, with a system of jurisprudence, they have not. Small municipal matters are regulated by the alcaldes and corregidors, and everything relating to the general government, to the military, and to foreigners, by the commandants, acting under the governor-general. Capital cases are decided by the latter upon personal inspection, if near, or upon minutes sent him by the proper officers, if the offender is at a distant place. No Protestant has any political rights, nor can he hold property, or, indeed, remain more than a few weeks on shore, unless he belong to a foreign vessel. Consequently, Americans and English, who intend to reside here, become papist, the current phrase among them being, a man must leave his conscience at Cape Horn. But to return to Monterey. The houses here, as everywhere else in California, are of one story, built of adobes, that is, clay made into large bricks, about a foot and a half square and three or four inches thick, and hardened in the sun. These are joined together by a cement of the same material, and the whole are of a common dirt color. The floors are generally of earth, the windows grated and without glass, and the doors, which are seldom shut, open directly into the common room, there being no entries. Some of the more wealthy inhabitants have glass to their windows and board floors, and in Monterey nearly all the houses are whitewashed on the outside. The better houses, too, have red tiles upon the roofs. The common ones have two or three rooms, which open into each other, and are furnished with a bed or two, a few chairs and tables, a looking-glass, a crucifix, and small daubs of paintings enclosed in glass, representing some miracle of martyrdom. They have no chimneys or fireplaces in the house, the climate being such as to make a fire unnecessary, and all their cooking is done in a small kitchen, separated from the house. The Indians, as I have said before, do all the hard work, two or three being attached to the better house, and the poorest persons are able to keep one at least, for they only have to feed them and give them a small piece of coarse cloth and a belt for the men, and a coarse gown without shoes or stockings for the women. In Monterey there are a number of English and Americans. English or Ingles, all are called who speak the English language who have married Californians, become united to the Roman Church, and acquired considerable property. Having more industry, frugality, and enterprise than the natives, they soon get nearly all the trade into their hands. They usually keep shops, in which they retail the goods purchased in larger quantities from our vessels, and also send a good deal into the interior, taking hides in pay, 
which they again barter with our ships. In every town on the coast there are foreigners engaged in this kind of trade, while I recollect but two ships kept by natives. The people are naturally suspicious of foreigners, and they would not be allowed to remain were it not that they conform to the church, and by marrying natives and bringing up their children as Roman Catholics and Mexicans, and not teaching them the English language, they quiet suspicion, and even become popular and leading men. The chief alcaldes in Monterey and Santa Barbara were Yankees by birth. The men in Monterey appeared to me to be always on horseback. Horses are as abundant here as dogs and chickens were in Juan Fernandez. There are no stables to keep them in, but they are allowed to run wild and graze wherever they please, being branded and having long leather ropes, called lassos, attached to their necks, and dragging along behind them, by which they can be easily taken. The men usually catch one in the morning, throw a saddle and bridle upon him, and use him for the day, and let him go at night, catching another the next day. When they go on long journeys, they ride one horse down and catch another, throw the saddle and bridle upon him, and after riding him down, take a third, and so on, to the end of the journey. There are probably no better riders in the world. They are put upon a horse when only four or five years old, their little legs not long enough to come halfway over his sides, and may almost be said to keep on him until they have grown to him. The stirrups are covered or boxed up in front to prevent their catching when riding through the woods, and the saddles are large and heavy, strapped very tight upon the horse, and have large pommels, or loggerheads in front, round which the lasso is coiled when not in use. They can hardly go from one house to another without mounting a horse, there being generally several standing tied to the doorpost of the little cottages. When they wish to show their activity, they make no use of their stirrups in mounting, but striking the horse, spring into the saddle as he starts, and sticking their long spurs into him, go off on a full run. Their spurs are cruel things, having four or five rowels, each an inch in length, dull and rusty. The flanks of the horses are often sore from them, and I have seen men come in from chasing bullocks with their horses' hind legs and quarters covered with blood. They frequently give exhibitions in their horsemanship in races, bull baitings, etc., but as we were not ashore during any holiday, we saw nothing of it. Monterey is also a great place for cockfighting, gambling of all sorts, fandangos, and various kinds of amusement and knavery. Trappers and hunters who occasionally arrive here from over the Rocky Mountains, with their valuable skins and furs, are often entertained with the amusements and dissipation until they have wasted their opportunities and their money and then go back, stripped of everything. Nothing but the character of the people prevents Monterey from becoming a large town. The soil is as rich as man could wish, climate as good as any in the world, water abundant, and situation extremely beautiful. The harbor, too, is a good one, being subject only to one bad wind, the north. And though the holding ground is not the best, yet I heard of but one vessel being driven ashore here. That was a Mexican brig, which went ashore a few months before our arrival, and was a total wreck. 
all the crew but one being drowned. Yet this was owing to the carelessness or ignorance of the captain, who paid out all his small cable before he let go his other anchor. The ship Lagoda of Boston was there at the time, and rode out the gale in safety, without dragging at all, or finding it necessary to strike the top-gallant mass. The only vessel in port with us was the little Laureate. I frequently went on board her, and became well acquainted with her Sandwich Island crew. One of them could speak a little English, and from him I learned a good deal about them. They were well-formed and active, with black eyes, intelligent countenances, dark olive, or I should rather say, copper complexions, and coarse black hair, but not woolly like the negroes. They appeared to be talking continually. In the forecastle there was a complete babble. Their language is extremely guttural, and not pleasant at first, but improves as you hear it more, and is said to have considerable capacity. They use a good deal of gesticulation, and are exceedingly animated, saying with their might what their tongues find to say. They are complete water-dogs, and therefore very good in boating. It is for this reason that there are so many of them on the coast of California, they being very good hands in the surf. They are also ready and active in the rigging, and good hands in warm weather. But those who have been with them round Cape Horn and in high latitudes, say that they are of little use in cold weather. In their dress they are precisely like our sailors. In addition to these islanders, the Laureate had two English sailors, who acted as bossons over the islanders, and took care of the rigging. One of them I shall always remember as the best specimen of the thoroughbred English sailor that I ever saw. He had been to sea from a boy, having served a regular apprenticeship of seven years, as English sailors are obliged to do, and was then about four or five and twenty. He was tall, but you only perceived it when he was standing by the side of others, for the great breadth of his shoulders and chest made him appear but little above the middle height. His chest was as deep as it was wide, his arm like that of Hercules, and his hand the fist of a tar, every hair of rope-yarn. With all this, he had one of the pleasantest smiles I ever saw. His cheeks were of a handsome brown, his teeth brilliantly white, and his hair of a raven black, waved in loose curls all over his head, and a fine open forehead, and his eyes he might have sold to the Duchess at the price of diamonds for their brilliancy. As for their color, Every change of position and light seemed to give them a new hue, but their prevailing color was black, or nearly so. Take him, with his well-varnished black tarpaulin slack upon the back of his head, his long locks coming down into his eyes, his white duck trousers and shirt, blue jacket and black kerchief, tied loosely round his neck, and he was a fine specimen of manly beauty." On his broad chest was stamped with Indian ink. Parting moments. A ship ready to sail, a boat on the beach, and a girl and her sailor lover taking their farewell. Underneath were printed the initials of his own name and two other letters, standing for some name which he knew better than I. The printing was very well done, having been executed by a man who made it his business to print with Indian ink for sailors at Havre. 
On one of his broad arms he had a crucifix, and on the other the sign of the foul anchor. He was fond of reading, and we lent him most of the books which we had in the forecastle, which he read and returned to us the next time we fell in with him. He had a good deal of information, and his captain said that he was a perfect seaman, and worth his weight in gold on board a vessel, in fair weather and in foul. His strength must have been great, and he had the sight of a vulture. It is strange that one should be so minute in the description of an unknown outcast sailor, whom one may never see again and whom no one may care to hear about. Yet it is so. Some persons we see under no remarkable circumstances, but whom, for some reason or other, we never forget. He called himself Bill Jackson, and I know of no one of all my accidental acquaintances to whom I would more gladly give a shake of the hand than to him. Whoever falls in with him will find a handsome hearty fellow and a good shipmate. Sunday came again while we were at Monterey, but, as before, it brought us no holiday. The people on shore dressed and came off in greater numbers than ever, and we were employed all day in boating and breaking out cargo, so that we had hardly time to eat. Our former second mate, who was determined to get liberty if it was to be had, dressed himself in a long coat and black hat, and polished his shoes, and went aft, and asked to go ashore. He could not have done a more imprudent thing, for he knew that no liberty would be given, and besides, sailors, however sure they may be of having liberty granted them, always go aft in their working clothes to appear as though they had no reason to expect anything, and then wash, dress, and shave after the matter is settled. But this poor fellow was always getting into hot water, and if there was a wrong way of doing a thing, he was sure to hit upon it. We looked to see him go aft, knowing pretty well what his reception would be. The captain was walking the quarter-deck, smoking his morning cigar, and Foster went as far as the break of the deck, and then waited for him to notice him. The captain took two or three turns, and, then walking directly up to him, surveyed him from head to foot, and lifting up his forefinger, said a word or two in a tone too low for us to hear, but which had a magical effect upon poor Foster. He walked forward, jumped down into the forecastle, and in a moment more made his appearance in his common clothes, and went quietly to work again. What the captain said to him, we never could get him to tell, but it certainly changed him outwardly and inwardly in a surprising manner. End of chapter 13